This conversation was originally presented as part of the BioLynx Alliance Greater and Squirrel Gliders Symposium. Here, keynote speakers Associate Professor Ross Goldingay from Southern Cross University and Dr. Rodney Van Der Rey from the University of Melbourne and WSP Australia answer audience questions about squirrel glider conservation. Hello, everyone. I want to uh, welcome you all to the Q&A with our speakers, Associate Professor Ross Goldingay from Southern Cross University and Dr. Rodney Van Der Rie from the University of Melbourne and WSP Australia. Thank you so much for being here today. I want to start this session off by uh, doing an acknowledgement of country. So BioLynx Alliance is proud to acknowledge the traditional owners of the places where we live and work. We recognise and respect the enduring relationships they have with their lands and water, and we pay our respects to elders past, present and future. I also want to remind everyone in this session that it is being recorded uh, and so we're asking people to please keep their cameras and their microphones off for the duration of the event and know that if you do turn your camera on at any point you may be captured. Uh, we, we obviously, um, we, we'll, oh sorry I just got a message saying someone can't hear me but I think everyone can hear me. Um, <laughs> that wasn't all for nothing. <laughs> We, this is a Q&A uh, session, so we would love you all to uh, please post your questions in the chat and we will be going to get, get through as many as we possibly can in the next sort of 45 minutes or so. Um, I'm assuming everyone here has seen Ross and Rodney's keynotes. Uh, if you haven't, you're more than uh, welcome to please watch those on the BioLynx Alliance YouTube after the fact. Um, but they are live on there for everyone to watch for free. So go ahead and watch those as well as a few others if you haven't seen them already. I think first what we're going to be doing is going directly to Bert Lobert. So I'm going to ask Bert. Uh, oh, Bert's not here yet. Uh, okay, maybe we'll ask Sophie if you want to kick off. Do you have any questions, Sophie, to kick us off? Um, well, uh, great talks, both Ross and um, Rod, or multiple talks, um, Rod. Um, so practical, um, so many great guidelines and tremendous information there. And I, I think they've been watched a lot online. So I think they're going to be, um, you know, very useful resources for people. Um, so thank you for them. So that wasn't my question. Um, interested in chainsaw hollows. Um, um, Ross, you made some comment about there being issues with installing doors on them. I, I don't, I've never really seen a chainsaw hollow. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more um, about this, about the door. <laughs> just that, you know, it's, I thought they were a relatively simple thing. One just, you know, found the right place to, you know. Just pull out a chainsaw. Hollow. You but um, obviously there's more to them. So I just wonder if you might want to sort of um, elaborate on that, some of the issues with the doors. Um, it's, it's a bit like uh, nest boxes. The weak link in a nest box is actually the lid. So the, the lid's sort of the first thing to fail. Now with, with the chainsaw hollows, you just, you know, obviously grab a chainsaw and cut your way into a tree and you're trying to create a cavity. But the way people are normally doing them is that they have a, they, cre they create, they cut a cavity and then they put a face plate over, the, over that cavity because you need a bigger, a bigger entrance to get your chainsaw in to actually, you know, carve out the right size hole. Um, and, and then the question is, well, how do you attach that um, face plate, you know, and typically they they get screwed in or whatever. 
So there are issues with uh, perhaps the screws um, degrading. Also, depending on what the faceplate, um, how that's been made, whether it was pre-made or whatever, it may split and crack. And also the, um, the tree is going to grow bark over that faceplate. So at some point it's going to need some, some maintenance, regardless of how, how well it's created. And Rodney, have you had seen issues with the with the um, doors on the hollows that you've seen installed? It really depends on the uh, on the um, arborist. The, well, the arborist and the the type of hollow. And so, I'm wondering whether I can share my screen. I can get you to share your screen. Give me one second. Yeah, because I've got there's two photos of two different kinds of hollows I've just pulled up. There you go. And, and, and that will, okay, uh, make sure I get the right screen. That one there. So have you got photos of two different kinds of hollows? I'll get rid of. Yes, we do. That. Yeah, so one of those, so, so there's essentially two different ways to, to install chainsaw hollows. The one on the on the, with the, I guess, well, the obvious one is the narrow door, which is a piece of um, kiln dried hardwood that gets put into a, into a slot. And basically you, you've carved out the inside. So you go through the narrow slot and then you make the hole bigger by, you know, swiveling the chainsaw effectively. Um, there, that's the approach that you can use on living timber. Whereas the other one is a face plate and what will happen for the faceplate is that that will die eventually because well, it's, it's, you, you carve it out of the, the side of the tree. If it's a living piece of timber, the rest of the tree will continue to grow, but the faceplate won't. So that's only suitable on a dead, on a dead piece of limb. Um, what will probably happen for the narrow door is that the tree will eventually, the, the growth of the, the, the bark and the wood will eventually grow over that narrow door and that's kind of what you want because then the hollow is naturally forming a callus over that the issue becomes if it completely covers the hollow or the hole the entrance hole and then and then the animals can't get back in but one you know we haven't been doing this long enough to know you know which species this happens to how often it happens and you know whether it's a major issue or not Great, thank you for taking us That's through right. that, Rodney. Is that your um, final question, Soph? Yes, thanks, thanks, that's great. And great to see those two illustrations too, thanks. No problem. Uh, we have a question from Jenny and Ewan. Jenny and Ewan, if you would like to unmute and ask your question. Thanks, Sasha. Um, we've had some uh, interesting discussions on um, bees settling up in uh, nest hollows and nest boxes and uh, whether that matters or not because they might just eventually go away from our experience they don't go away from the hollows in our trees in our bush block but um, we've heard various things over the years about how you can deter bees setting up hives like putting carpet on the lids of nest boxes and things is either of you got any experience on how to deter bees because we've got a big problem on our bush property um if i can quickly respond to that uh so my, my experience is that 
uh, where we've had nest boxes, typically the bees will depart after one year. I've had a couple where they've persisted for, for maybe two years. That's not to say there won't be some areas where, where the bees um, stay longer. And uh, I guess one strategy is uh, you could put up additional boxes so that there are sort of redundant boxes. Um, the issue about carpet, I don't know that, um, that well, not, not that I don't know. I mean, we've, we've had boxes with carpet and it, it just doesn't deter them. So, you know, that idea, it just doesn't work. Um, I'm just trying to think other other measures. Um, I mean, obviously people get in there and treat them. So they, they put up cattle tags and things like that that are impregnated with insecticide. We've, we've done, a, we did a bit of that in the early days and um, it, it wasn't always effective. Sometimes it worked, but typically, as I say, I mean, our experience is that when, when the bees sort of outgrow the, the cavity size, even though I have seen a couple of uh, sort of rudimentary boxes in, in um, Brisbane where there was a huge hive um, outside the actual cavity itself. Mostly they, they swarm and, and, and disappear uh, once they outgrow that space. And Over to you, Rod. Yeah, look, I, I would say the same. You know, we, we, I've often come across boxes, or often, I wouldn't say often. There, there's, I guess in most projects where we check boxes, some of them, a small percentage have, have bees. I've never found it to be so bad that it outweighs the all the positive benefits of the, the project, but it does happen. Um, and so, you know, I think what Ross said, one option is have more nest boxes than you think you need, and that lets the bees have one or two. Um, if they're natural hollows that sometimes are occupied by bees, I don't, I'm not aware of any carved chainsaw hollows yet that have been used by bees. And I don't know whether that's because we haven't installed enough or maybe there's a, maybe the carved hollows are not optimal for bees. I'm not sure. Have you come across any Ross, any carved hollows with bees? Um, I don't think so. I'm trying to think whether William had one. Uh... I don't think he did. Maybe one out of, yeah, you might have one, or you had some insect issue with one of them. But um, I mean, the, the key one of the key points is that you're going to get um, occupation um, of natural hollows by bees too. So it's not just that they're targeting the, um, the nest boxes or whatever. You're going to get a similar sort of percentage use of natural hollows in the same area. The, the only other point I could make is that they do the bees do tend to show a preference for larger cavity sizes so the bigger boxes so if you're putting up you know possum boxes or owl boxes they will get targeted whereas if you've got something with a smaller uh, cavity size they're, they're less likely to be used yeah interesting uh, there um our problem i guess has mainly been with natural hollows and that and we tend to well, currently we're seeing probably about one feral beehive per hectare to a hectare and a hectare and a half across the property. And tree hollows are a natural hollows are a limiting thing where we are. So yeah, I'm always interested in ways around this problem. I think there's going to be some landscapes, Jenny, where there's just going to be. Um a high density of feral beehives and it, and it will be um, problematic. So 
you know, you're just going to have to um, experiment to some extent to see what might work. But yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of bees there. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yep. Thanks very much. Thank you, Jenny and Ewan. Uh, it's an interesting follow-up question from Kylie around density of nest boxes. Kylie, would you like to ask that directly yourself? Uh, sure. Uh, thank you. Um, can you have too many nest boxes <laughs> in a particular area? Is there any, you know, uh, implications of that in terms of competition and creating dramas with <laughs> fighting squirrels? Uh, I, I think you can. Um, I, I mean, you don't. You know, there is a cost with putting them up. They all cost money. So, you know, the more you put in one area, it's, you know, some of them are be becoming redundant. And what we know from radar tracking studies of animals using natural hollows is that th they will often uh, utilise um, as many as there are in the area. So some species are, have been reported, including one of Rod's studies, um, of using a very large number because there's a very large number that are available to them. And from our work, what we've seen is that you only need to put a couple up because they need more than they, they, they typically need more than one. And I hesitated then because I've got a few boxes on my property here and I've, I've got a single one up the back and that's been occupied by sugar gliders almost continuously for the last six or seven years. So, so they've got by with just one, one uh, nest box. Whereas a bit further down here, I've got a couple set up and they, they have a they've had a favoured box and then they they alternate and it's and I you know it seems what's going on there is that they this is a way of actually shedding their um, ectoparasites so if they stay in one box for too long the parasites build up and if they they can then move to another one so you sort of want to allow for that so what what we tend to recommend is maybe put up say three three is sort of a bit of an optimal size and then if you can have them spread out so that um, you know animals can actually you know different different social groups or whatever can can utilize them whereas if they if you've got them too close together you're sort of forcing animals to come into in a very close contact not that they can't deal with that they can but it's probably better and you'll get better results if they're spread further apart and and also the point about um you know the density of boxes you want sort of the same type in some of the studies i've reviewed you know because of the nature of those studies they've often put up one of each of different types. So they've included some that are, you know, say your target is a school glider or something, they've often put up possum or owl boxes, which are not, not so optimal for, for squirrel gliders. So they'll get occasional use, but it's not sort of achieving the, the purpose that you perhaps would want it to achieve. I would probably disagree, Ross, I think, and, and Kylie. I, th I think the key thing there is you know this this presentation's you know supposedly about squirrel gliders but in a natural forest there's probably 20 you know certainly in northern victoria in the southwest slopes 20 large diameter or 20 hollow bearing trees per hectare and if we make an assumption that each one of those trees has say five hollows we've got a hundred hollows per hectare um, potentially naturally occurring and you know there's squirrel gliders sugar gliders birds possums, there's a whole range of species that that would could potentially use them. So I think the only limitation really is a, a cost. And then you can't, if you've only got $100, you can't put up a thousand boxes in one spot, you would want to spread them out. So I think that's, you know, from a, a cost effectiveness perspective, that's probably a limiting thing. But I would be saying as many boxes as you can of different shapes and sizes for a range of different species. 
yeah. in the long run. It, it gets to the point, right, of what the um, objective is. Correct. The objective is for targeting squirrel gliders. And, right. and you know, we've we've done quite a bit of work that does support this idea that you only need a couple of nest, yeah. if you're using nest boxes, I'm not specifically saying we should be putting up lots of nest boxes, but yeah. um, you know, you only need a few. And the studies right. that show animals are using up to 22 um, different tree hollows not every individual does that. We've mm. done long, you know, relatively long-term studies on yellow-bellied gliders in areas and they, they use relatively few, even though there are potentially hundreds available to them. Yep. So you know, a, a given um, social group of animals doesn't need a huge number of um, tree hollows or, or mm. nest boxes. That's right. They use, them, they use a lot because they can, not yeah. because they necessarily have to. Good, thank you. Thank you for your question, Kylie. Uh, I want to change the topic and go to Bert again. Um, you have a question about sugar gliders upper altitudinal range. Oh yeah, thanks. Um, so I sort of asked David this question too. I'm just interested in your insight, given you've spent so much time, you guys, um, looking at squirrels and sugars, and obviously, you know, thinking about it a lot. At least. Sugars, the, the southern, you know, what we're calling the southern crab species now, but, but more broadly, if we think of sugar gliders and squirrels, they're so morphologically and ecologically similar, um, certainly not identical, but what, what is driving the partitioning, this altitudinal partitioning um, between the two species? Why, why, why don't squirrel gliders go into slightly, you, you know, wetter forests, even... Um, you know, in the one in the one landscape where they just drop out very predictably um, when the habitat changes. When you would think that if there's habitat there to exploit, they could certainly do it. You know, their other their cousins, yellow bellies, go from sea level up to altitude as well. Have you got any thoughts on what's actually under what what underlies this um, this altitudinal and perhaps ge geographical separation between the two species? I'll let Rod take that first. I've got a few ideas. Yeah, look, I, I don't know. It's probably diet related, and I, I'm I, you know, I, I spent a bit of time thinking about this twenty odd years ago when surveying for squirrel gliders in northern Victoria, and haven't thought much more about it. Um, Sugar gliders are, I guess they're more generalist than squirrels, but you know, how that, how that, um, you know, shows itself, manifests itself in their distributional range, I, I don't actually know. I mean, Ross, do you, you've got some ideas, well, probably well, better than me. It could, that. it could be, it could be two factors driving it. Often when you go into the higher elevation forest, you've got yellow bellied gliders, which are going to beat up smaller gliders. I mean, I've seen them beat up sugar gliders. Um, I've even found a dead sugar glider under a tree that had uh, yellow bellies and sugars in the night before. Uh, so I think there's that element that um, sugars may be able to um, coexist with yellow bellies uh, more, more so than squirrels because they're, they're um, you know, more different in size. So there's food types that are more available to them. Squirrel gliders seem to be a bit more reliant on winter flowering species. So a lot of the lowland areas um, are often dominated by, you know, red gums and, and ironbarks that 
often flower during the winter months, whereas a lot of the areas where you see um, sugar gliders at higher elevation, even though there can be winter flowering things there, um, it's not not to the same extent. There's a, you know, often, certainly the areas with yellow bellies can, can be um, more of a mix of, of tree species, even though there are areas where there are, you know, um, winter flowering species that the yellow bellies get into such as on the on the New South Wales south coast and and some of those areas supposedly have have uh, squirrel gliders in them so I think it's a mix of avoiding uh, a competition with with larger species and and a, it's a dietary thing driven by the timing of flowering of things Perfect. Great. did that answer your yeah, question back thanks. Uh, well, <laughs> there's there's some leads there. Um, I mean, I didn't expect nobody's got the definitive answer, but it it's just one of those little things in the back of your mind. If you spend enough time looking at the animals, you know, you just ask yourself, well, why? You know, why is it like this or why is it like that? Um, and it's just and it, it's interesting also because in you know in some areas you find squirrel gliders are numerically dominant, especially in sort of remnant or roadside type areas. Um, if there are any sugar glasses, gliders at all. But in other areas that look suitable, there's nothing. And you'd almost think that maybe sugars would invade those sites. But yeah, I mean, these are just the, the, the why questions that drive you to keep looking, I suppose. So yeah, thanks, thanks for your responses. You know, make a great PhD project for someone. So if there's anyone out there. And I know you had a second question, Bert. Do you want to go ahead with that one? Sure, thanks. I'd love to because um, um, I don't have a, a long history with squirrels. Um, just the last few years really looking, I mean, always been interested in them, but only the last few years actually going out and surveying and, and um, sort of questioning, you know, asking the why questions. But um, gee, the more I look and talk to people and the more widely you look, you know, the, the difference morphologically between squirrels and sugars um, in, in the field can be very subtle. And certainly looking at, and, and this will come up later on in some of the workshops, I think, but looking at Atlas records and so on, you just wonder how confident we can be of the data sets. So, so behind that is, you know, how do we identify with confidence a squirrel glider from a sugar glider in the field? And so I'm just wondering what characteristics you guys would rely on generally, um, mm. if you don't have them in the hand, to identify, uh, distinguish between adults of the two species. Yeah, that's a really good question, Bert. And um, sometimes, just to put your mind and others' minds at ease, we, and I'm speaking on behalf of Ross here as well, but certainly myself, we look at animal. I look at animals sometimes and I uh, just, you hesitate to give it a definite ID because something doesn't quite look right. Um, and so for me, the, there is one definitive uh, I guess character and that is if it's got a white tip to the tail it's 100% sugar glider. Ross is shaking his head we'll get to that in a minute Ross <laughs> or maybe Sasha you can um, delete Ross from the uh, from the presentation. I'll <laughs> just gotta... mute him that's yeah, the yeah. trend now. Um, so, so okay so 99% likely to be sugar glider if it's got a white tip. 97. 97 okay 
pretty it's pretty it's, it's about as definitive as it gets the other um other other ways we tell them apart is um if and it's it's actually a combination of characters uh, it's, it's never just the one if the body and the tail width is more or less the same so you can't pick their you know their bum basically from their tail and they've got a really fluffy tail that's more likely a squirrel glider um in my part in victoria and southwest slopes new south wales if it's got a white whiter chest and belly that's typically more likely squirrel glider sugar gliders tend to be a bit yellower and grayer um, but there's variation in that as well there's the shape face squirrels tend to be a bit pointier um, and i think for, for what i always try and do when i do camera trapping is i have a bait station that is a consistent size across projects. So you know that your bait station is, you know, right. 50 centimetres tall, and mm. that's the only bait station you use. And every bait station is 50 centimetres, sorry, 50 millimetres, not 50 centimetres, 50 millimetres, five centimetres or whatever. Then you can use that as a measuring stick, basically. And that helps. But sometimes you get juvenile squirrels that look like sugars and adults sugars with big fluffy bums that you know make it a bit hard sometimes you mean within a population or between populations Rodney? G generally it's bet between so we've had one project up near Echuca and it's really hard to tell them apart because you just think oh that could be either and you, if you don't get a really good profile photo or it's an obscured photo a bit it's like, what could it be but it's about getting your eye in, having the animals in the hand sometimes, so you can actually see them side by side on occasions, so that when you do go back to those photos, you can um, uh, tell them apart more easily. They have different calls, Bert, so if you happen to hear the call, the problem is the squirrel glider doesn't call very often. Yeah, will call sort of most nights, whereas squirrel gliders don't. Um, but certainly, if you've got them in the hand, most of the time it's it's sort of relatively straightforward. If if they're adults, like the adults shouldn't overlap in body weight. So if you've got an adult that's I don't know one fifty grams plus, it's not it's unlikely it's going to be a sugar glider. Um, as Rod said, I mean, there's certain um, physical characteristics. The problem. The problem we have is that um, the northern segment of the range, the squirrel gliders don't, the, the tail base is not quite as fluffy as it is in Victoria. And also the, um, the animals actually have multicolored bellies. So the belly sort of transitions from sort of a, um, a sort of a bright, uh, well, maybe a lemon yellow through to a mustard yellow. Uh, so, whereas the sugars, they, they do tend to be that, I mean, they will go through a bit of a color range as well, but the younger ones can often be sort of a, a bit grayish, but certainly, yeah, the head shape, um, the pointed snout should be more pronounced on a squirrel glider at the tail mm. base. But the best thing, if you, you know, I get sent lots of photos and people say, you know, what's this, is it this or that? And I'm always reluctant to be um, too definitive. Um, and what I would say, you know, given that you, we do want to know where the squirrels are, um, is that if people get photographs and perhaps send them around and get people to sort of, you know, 
thumbs up or thumbs down, but it needs to be backed up with, um, you know, some some animals in the hand. So someone needs to go out there and do some, you know, some trapping if if there are if you do need to verify certain locations. Thanks. Thank you for your question, Bert. I'm going to go to Gail Osborne. If you can hear us, Gail, let us know if you can join and go ahead and ask your question. Now, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Go ahead. Um, so we seem to be totally reliant on restoration projects where there's a community group and good people to lead something. So what happens when you've got some critical habitat, um, there's squirrel gliders, and there's no one doing anything. So how do, how do we deal with project, potential projects where there's no one with the capacity in a community to actually take that big amount of work on? I, I, Sorry, I'm did, sort of could you hear my question? Yeah, yeah, we heard your question. It was a good question. It's a challenge. Um, you, need, you need some sort of local yeah. change. And, Someone that can access or speak to people that um, have done similar projects who could advise you about how to how to try and tap into some money to try and um, do some restoration. Mm. I think another option is is there's always a need, um, as you said, Gail. There's there's lots of bits of habitat and bits of bush around and lots of endangered animals that need that need protecting and caring and and it would be nice and I don't know who would do this or how it's done but to be able to prioritize somehow and that's not to exclude certain sites or species or projects but rather bring the most important ones which will have the greatest benefit to the top of the list so that when we do, whoever the we is, uh, apply for funds to do work, that that the, the most important, most beneficial projects get the funds. That's probably a DELP, you know, prioritisation sort of framework or system in Victoria, at least. Okay, thank you, Gail. Um, and Catherine Madden had a question about um, some distinguishing features as well. Catherine, would you like to ask your question? Oh, thank you. I was just, um, apparently a wildlife carer said that the distinguishing features between the sugars and the squirrels is the, um, the membrane, either from the finger or the hand, and you can just tell that straight away. No, this I don't know if that's right or not, or... There won't be any difference in the membrane. These animals are very similar. Mm. Really, it's just the body size and, and a few few other features like the head shape and the tail base. Okay, thank you. I'll let her know. We're up in um, Brisbane. Yeah, uh, gr greater gliders are different though. They, I think they attach from the elbow rather than the hand. Oh, I thought we were talking about sugars and Yeah, we are. We were, but yeah. yeah. Yep. Okay, thank you for your question, Catherine. I actually have a question for you, Ross. I noticed in your keynote presentation, you talk a lot about nest box attrition. I wanted to know what your top takeaways are for longevity and low maintenance of nest boxes. Okay, well, one of the things that we identified in um, the study down at uh, Bendigo was that the attachment technique is, is critical. 
and, and I've seen this elsewhere with some of the box projects I've done that, um, you know, if the box is, depending on how it's attached, it, if, if you don't allow for um, tree growth, the tree's going to pop the box off the, the tree. So I've seen a lot of boxes in Victoria that have actually been nailed directly to the tree, either through the, the back of the box or through a, a backing board that's attached to the box. Um, and that's going to be popped off in a few years, whereas a more common technique in New South Wales, and it's not to say it's the best technique, is to use fencing wire. And the fencing wire has a concertina section in it so that it can expand. That's, that's not actually an infallible technique because sometimes, particularly with a rear entry nest box, the, the box can sort of grip onto the trunk of the tree so that even though, you know, there may be room for growth, uh, expansion, the you know, the, the tree can still sort of pop the box. Um, what we did in one project, and this is what was done or has been done in the, the studies um, by the uh, Bendigo field mats is to um, just hang the box on a, on a large nail. So the first box project I ever did, I could see that this was an issue and I used decking spikes and hung them on, on that. So that's, um, you know, that's one, one thing. The, I guess the other thing is whether the box falls apart. I mean, there's been a lot of work done by different people trying to, you know, sort of reinvent the wheel, so to speak. Um, and as I said earlier, it's really the lead and the, the screws and the hinges that where these things come apart. Um, and often with the projects I've done, if the, the, uh, the, the lid fails, we end up just sort of wrapping a bit of wire around the, um, the lid to hold it in place. So to some extent, if you can do away with a, you know, screws and a, and a hinge, um, it will last longer. But I guess the point I was trying to make in my, my other talk was that, you know, people have shown a lot of concern about boxes um, falling apart within a very short period of time. And um, our experience is that boxes can last a lot longer, you know, that you can go five or even 10 years. Some of the boxes down at Bendigo were left um, unmaintained for, for 15 years and, and, you know, still more than 20% 20, 20 of them were functional after that period. And I, I think okay. there's, um, sorry, I was going to say, there's, there's a whole range of new, you know, sort of uh, 3D printed nest boxes and someone in the chat talking about a concrete sort of, uh, Denise McGregor is talking about a concrete kind of box. So, so there's a range of new techniques being trialled that, that may alleviate some of those issues. It, it also depends a bit on habitat. So if in wet, wet forests compared to dry forests or areas with high rainfall, will there'll be a greater you know, decay rate of boxes compared to a drier landscape. Yeah, perfect. We've had boxes last for 15 years in, in Brisbane, um, Rod. Fairly high rainfall. I agree with what you're saying, but um, it doesn't mean that in those areas the boxes are going to need, you know, um, monthly or, or annual maintenance. And in terms of some of the other box types, that that's true. One issue I have with some some box types is that I I like to be able to you know readily get my hands into a box to grab what's in there, whereas. With some of these sort of manufactured types, they're, they're manufactured in a way, the only way you can really see what's in there is by putting a pole camera in through the entrance hole, which is fine if you know that these things are going to work and they're going to be occupied. But if you, um, you know, if you want to be able to 
definitively uh, find your animals and, and see whether it's a sugar or a squirrel, you'd need to sort of be able to get your hand in there. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to switch a little bit and still talk about nest boxes, but specifically I wanted to talk about uh, the temperature control in them. I know it's um, temperature of gliders has been a, an ongoing thread through the conversations we've had over the last couple of days. And I actually wanted to invite Denise to expand okay. upon your point um, with regards to some of those um, tests you've been doing with David Lindemeyer about um, different types of nest boxes and if that had any impact on temperature. Are you there, Denise? Oh, sorry, can you just say that again? Yeah, I just wanted to That's ask if you wanted to, that's okay. I just wanted to ask if you wanted to expand on your point in the chat with regards to some um, some uh, test cases you've been working on with David Lindemeyer about some concrete nest boxes, longevity, and uh, especially in relation to temperature control of those, as we know that nest boxes uh, do record higher temperature than natural tree hollows. Yeah, so as, uh, as part of my PhD, I actually had eye buttons in about 80 hollows. Um, from North Queensland through into Victoria, um, through all my sites, and as well as in the canopy outside, um, close to the hollows where we saw gliders perching at night, so we could compare the two temperatures there. And so we could look at the temperatures they're experiencing inside the hollows as well as outside, and to look and see if there's a lag that maybe meant that the temperature inside the hollow never quite reaches the outside temperature before it starts to come down. So we're still analyzing that data. Um, but it kind of also went along with the metabolic testing I did at gliders where we looked at thermal capacities um, and how they differed between uh, northern populations and southern populations. So my PhD was really looking at the drivers that drive the body size variation we see as uh, many species tend to get smaller as you move toward the equator. Unfortunately, with greater gliders, my study showed that it looks like there are three species. So. It sort of was interesting for my PhD since I was looking for what drives a single species body size variation. But so anyway, we're using a bunch of that data now in the new project. And so we plan to look at that hollow data um, when we try to model some new designs for nest boxes. And we're working with WWF who has a grant um, to do that as well. So it's still a bit early and we hope to be able to use ANU um, and some of the science and engineering you know, specialties there to help us design boxes. But we are wondering if it's possible to even have boxes that may be slightly cooler than what they're experiencing in the habitat, which might help to buffer them against you know, um, extreme events. Although as Kara's you know, really into the research about nighttime temperatures, because they have to be outside during those temperatures and those look like they're increasing. So, um, Anyway, so it's really early in that, but I know that they're looking, definitely we're talking about looking at some different designs and being able to test those designs in the lab, in the climate controlled rooms, both with and without gliders. So. Thanks, Denise. And Ross, Rodney, do you have any follow-up comments to that? Yeah, I think it's, it's an really interesting that we are still having discussions now about the design of nest boxes, despite the fact that we've been using them for you know, 40 odd plus years. And I think one of the things I tried to um, uh, stress in, in my presentation about, you know, improving our knowledge is, you know, we're all out there putting up boxes, but if we can get a little bit smarter about what the design of those boxes and working together 
and setting it up as an experiment. So rather than just putting up what we think is the best box or what someone else thought was a good design, but actually, you know, maybe having two or three kinds of boxes in close proximity to each other and then, and then you know, it, it could be a box and a chainsaw hollow and another kind of box, you know, a concrete one and a wooden one and a carved hollow, whatever it might be. But, and then we put out 20 or 50 of those triplicates we can actually answer some of these questions that we're still discussing today um, in with with some reliable, you know, strong evidence in some years to come. Otherwise, the risk that I, the thing that I'm concerned about with carved hollows is we're all out there doing our thing, putting in different designs slightly differently. And we're hoping that in 10 years time, somebody can get enough information to put together a really um, reliable design or suggestion for how we should be doing carved hollow. So let's, I think, so my, my plea there is if let's work together, let's collaborate across borders, across jurisdictions, whatever it might be, and, and design this like an experiment and we'll get good, strong evidence uh, as, of what best practice is going forward. Absolutely. Go ahead, Ross. The comments I would make is that it seems mess boxes are a little bit like wheels. People want to keep reinventing them. The, I mean, I think we have fairly good information about the design elements that we need to target certain species. Certainly not all species, but some species like these small gliders. We know the key design issues. Certainly there's been research done um, into what can we do to have a design that um, creates a slightly cooler box. So, you know, Steve Griffiths and others have done work um, looking at different paints. We know that positioning uh, boxes on different sides of a tree can create a, you know, one or two degree um, buffer. We can use concrete boxes. We've done that. It's been done widely in North America. Um, but the question is, do we really need to do all that because We've also done studies like we, we did a 10 year study in Southeast Queensland. We had squirrel gliders occupying boxes continuously. And, you know, there was more than a hundred breeding events or sorry, it might've been 60 odd breeding events. Um, so, th so the question there is, do we need a different design mess box in that particular area? And I don't think we do. The question of, should we be concerned about temperatures in mess boxes? I think, I think we do, we need to keep looking at that, but the, some of the information we have so far, so I've looked at this with some of, some of my sites with squirrel gliders and also pygmy possums, and it doesn't seem like there's a, an issue there. Uh, with Karen Thomas down at Bendigo, we've, we tracked um, sugar gliders and fasca gales in nest boxes over the summer of, um, was it 2018, 2019, and we had, trying to think now, we might've had 10 days where it went to 45 degrees or above, or oh, sorry, 10 days over 40 degrees, one day when it went to 45 degrees. And we, we followed animals that we knew that they were in the boxes and we had data loggers in there. And um, even though we were expecting the worst, there was actually no mortality, which is quite surprising. And the, um, the surveys of, of the boxes through those broader areas demonstrated there was no decline over a, you know, the 12 month period that we did the surveys. So it's not to say we shouldn't be worried about heat waves. I think we should be, but, um, and we need to do more research, but I think uh, 
you know, we, we're, maybe we're perhaps, you know, trying to reinvent the wheel when we don't need to. And, and maybe, you know, Rodney's made some good points about Chainsaw Hollow. So it may well be that the Chainsaw Hollow is the, the way to move forward with, because we know from the work that Steve Griffiths and others have done that um, those hollows are more stable and cooler um, throughout the year. So maybe if there is a temperature issue that that, that could be the way to go. But one of the um, other points I would make in regard to nest boxes is that they, they offer a lot of flexibility. So some of the sites I've worked at, you have the flexibility where you can move these things around. I've done a study with pygmy possums where I put boxes in and then I took them out. You have that flexibility with um, uh, nest boxes, which you don't with chainsaw hollows. And there are certain, certainly some areas in the box ironbark forest where the tree diameters are very narrow. So even if you go in there wanting to put in, I don't know, 20 or 50 chainsaw hollows, um, you know, there's not, not often that many trees you can put them into where those trees may not fail at a later date because the trees are just not big enough. So I think there's still uses for nest boxes and they, they really offer a lot of flexibility to address um, a lot of research questions. Thank you so much. Uh, some really good points both from both of you, Rodney and Ross, and I've got a few uh, few comments in the chat as well. So everyone check those out. Uh, we're out of time for this session. So I just wanna thank you both again for your valuable input, another great conversation. So I really appreciate you taking the time and thank you as well to Jerry Alexander, who's also been answering some questions uh, in the chat as well. So thank you again, and I hope everyone enjoys the rest of the day. The Greater and Squirrel Gladys Symposium was proudly presented by BioLinks Alliance in conjunction with Strathbogie Ranges Conservation Management Network and Wombat Forest Care, and made possible through generous sponsorship from the Ross Trust, Pool of Dreams, Clara Lice's Gift, and the Great Eastern Ranges.